You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Seraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we have. We thank you that you are good, you are God, you are Lord over all, and you're sovereign over this hour that we have, and you care for us, you care for your church, and by your spirit you are at work. Lord, would you build us up now in accordance with your word that we would be a people who'd be sold out for you, hungry for you, surrendering all for you. Lord, may we be that city that shines your glory. Be at work, we pray now, for our good, for your glory. We commit ourselves to you in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people said with one super loud voice. Amen, amen, amen. city on a hill. Why don't you go grab a seat? Wonderful to be with you. So good that we can gather together as God's people Special greeting to friends, family joining us near and far online. Why don't we thank the Lord for them, the technology, the opportunity to gather wherever you are. We're all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known here. So good to see you. So good that we could be together. Uh, a few months ago, uh, I had the opportunity to vil- uh, visit the Billy Graham Museum at uh, Wheaton College in Chicago. I like most Christians have a great admiration uh, for Billy Graham. Uh, I studied at RMIT University. My final major project was on Billy Graham, or particularly the media surrounding his visit to Melbourne in 1959, uh, where 130,000 people gathered at the MCG as he preached the gospel of Jesus. Uh, It's estimated that across Billy Graham's ministry, 
He preached the gospel to some 215 million people across 185 different countries and territories. Uh, It's estimated, check this out, 3.2 million people responded to the invitation of the gospel under his preaching at his crusades. 3.2 million people in God's hand went from death to life. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. But what many people do not know uh, is that Billy Graham's ministry almost didn't happen. Billy Graham's ministry almost didn't happen. Uh, Everything we know about Billy Graham's ministry actually hinged on one singular moment in history. It's the summer of 1949. Billy Graham's 31 years of age. Uh, He's weeks away from the historic uh, Los Angeles crusades. And up until this point, his ministry, his preaching has in his own words been something of a disappointment. The crusades haven't gone to plan. Uh, He says in his biography that it was actually a flop. And coupled with this, One of his good friends, a guy named Charles Templeton, had been in his ear challenging him about his ministry and, in fact, about his faith. Charles Templeton actually was an evangelistic preacher, but he went on to study at Princeton University. And at Princeton, he he was challenged about the Bible. And he came back from Princeton really questioning the validity of the Bible and actually the, the, the gospel of Jesus that Billy Graham proclaimed. And so he was in Billy Graham's ear telling him, no, 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 the Bible's outdated and this gospel that you preach, you're on the wrong side of history, Billy Graham. Graham shares that this really began to unnerve him. And he was struggling, struggling with his ministry, struggling with his thoughts about the scriptures. And so late one night, while alone, uh, he was at like a, uh, a, a retreat in the forest in Los Angeles, uh, he began to, to grapple, uh, reflecting and, and searching for, for answers. And reflecting back on this moment, he says, I had no doubt concerning the deity of Jesus Christ or the validity of the gospel, but was the Bible completely true? With a Los Angeles campaign galloping toward me, I had to have an answer. If I could not trust the Bible, I could not go on. I would have to quit the school presidency. I would have to leave pulpit evangelism. So his heart is heavy. And that night in the forest, he goes for a walk. The moon's out, long shadows through the forest. And Graham opens up his Bible and he places it on a tree stump before him. And as he places his Bible on this tree stump, he prays to God. He confesses to God. He shares his his struggles and his doubts to the Lord. And then he falls on his knees before the Bible and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says, Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be 
your inspired word. When he stood up on that August night, his eyes stung with tears. He says, I sensed the presence and power of God as I had not sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered, but I knew, I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. Graham's moment by the tree stump was the turning point in his life. Uh, It was the moment in his life and indeed the lives of millions that would follow. And I share that not only out of admiration for Graham's resolve, but because of what I feel is so pressing for the church today. In a world that pushes us and pulls us in different directions, in a culture where the Bible is challenged and we face our own struggles and our own doubts, we each need our moment by that tree stump. We need to open the Bible and face into our questions and decide. Will I close the book? Walk away? Or will I resolve, as Graham did, to accept this as God's word and live by faith? This morning, uh, we are continuing in this epic series, looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's an extraordinary moment in salvation history where we see the hand of God's grace deliver God's people Israel out of exile and establishing their life and their worship in Jerusalem. In the first six chapters, uh, we've journeyed with God's people as the first wave of exiles have returned to Jerusalem and have rebuilt the temple. But in chapter 7, which is where we are today, the temple is now finally finished. And we're met with a question. What will characterize the worship of God's people? Will Israel's worship be just like the other nations, like the world? Or will they and will we build and center our lives on God's word? If you have a Bible handy, and I hope you do, why don't you go and open it and come with me to our reading in Ezra chapter 7. Three observations today to help us through. First, the rebuild requires complete devotion to God's word. When it comes to the rebuild in Jerusalem, when it comes to the rebuild in our life and our church and our family, when it comes to the rebuild, it requires complete devotion to God's word. So in chapter seven, we meet, finally meet, in fact, Ezra. And we learn some important details in the opening few verses. 
For example, in 1 to 5, we discover that Ezra lived in Babylon during the reign of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was king of Persia from 464 to 525 BC, which places this chapter, interestingly, about 60 years after the temple was finished. The other point about Ezra is that his family tree, you would have heard of all of those, the sons of, the the family tree runs all the way back to Aaron. How many of you have been to Ancestry.com? Nobody. Few hands, a few hands. If you trace my family tree, at least on one side, you'll see it goes all the way back to Sicily in Italy. Uh, This perhaps explains my flailing hands as a preacher. Explains why I need a cordless mic. If you give me a handheld, I can't speak. I need my hands. What does it mean that Ezra comes from the line of Aaron? It means that he was set apart as a priest. He was set apart as a priest. Now, priests uh, were the go-betweens for Israel and God. And often when we think about a priest, we, we, we imagine them there at the temple offering the, the rituals and the sacrifices. But it's important to remember that the role of a priest had a particular role when it came to God's word. And this is exactly what the narrator is wanting to underscore when it comes to his life. The writer says, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So he was skilled in the law of Moses. Now, whenever the Bible talks about the law of Moses, it, it often has in mind the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, three gold stars for all of you. Right, so these five books include the Ten Commandments and the various laws and regulations surrounding worship, but they also provide us the foundational text when it comes to knowing who God is, where the world comes from, and what your purpose is as a man or woman made in the image and likeness of God. And while Moses clearly plays an important role as a mouthpiece for Israel, what I preach about, appreciate about our text today is the emphasis that the narrator gives to God. Note that verse again. Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. You see that? Moses, deep thinker, no doubt. Moses loved the Lord, spiritual zeal. But when he stood before Israel, when he penned the book's to help guide Israel toward and in the promised land, it was not his word that the people were hearing, but the very word of God. God was giving his word to his people, and he was giving his word to his people that his people might know him, that his people might love him, that his people might worship him him. Think about that. Uh, You can get a a glimpse of God by looking at the beauty of a sunrise. You can get a sense of God's justice 
when you consider your own moral compass. You can get a feel for his glory. Whenever you're surrounded by greatness or you have that experience of transcendence, But when it comes to knowing God personally, as God has chosen to be revealed, he does so in and through his word. By show of hands, who who remembers uh, the movie The Notebook? Wow, everybody, right? The Notebook, right? So in the opening scene, we meet an elderly man uh, reading a love story to an elderly woman who's a fellow patient in the nursing home. And the notebook he reads to her tells the story of this two young lovers, Ali and Noah, who meet one evening at a carnival. Uh, Ali's a wealthy girl from the city. Uh, Noah, poor boy from the country. Together they fall in love, only to be separated by disapproving parents. But as destiny would have it, they're brought back together where their love is restored and their dream fulfilled. But of course, as you know, as the movie develops and the notebook is read, we discover something quite tragic and beautiful. The elderly woman in the nursing home is, in fact, Ellie, and yet age and dementia have stolen her memories. She no longer knows the love that she once had. She no longer remembers the man of her dreams. And who is the elderly man by her bedside? who is the one reading the notebook to her, it is, of course, her husband, Noah, sitting patiently by her side, reading her diary to remind her of the love they shared. Towards the end of the movie, the camera zooms in on a few words, scribbled by Ellie herself on the front page of the notebook. Here it is. The story of our lives, read this to me, and I'll come back to you. The story of our lives. Read this to me and I'll come back to you. Here's the point. The Bible is not merely a record of historical events, though it's historical. It's not merely a collection of laws, though it includes many references to commands. Uh, It's not even a book of religion, Though there's lots of talk of temples and rituals and sacrifices. No, this is what the Bible is. The Bible is a story of a great and loving God who made you, who pursues you, who cares for you, who loves you. And this notebook is given that we might see God and come back to him. This is what I love about Ezra. This is a man who is devoted to God's word. You need to keep in mind that Ezra at the time was living in Babylon. In other words, he's living in a time and place and a culture with all kinds of different views and opinions. They worship different gods. They see the world in a completely different way. And yet he resolved to read God's word, to know God's word. And we equally need to be gripped by that same resolve. We live in a world with 
different worldviews and competing ideologies, and they're all vying for your attention and your obedience. The question is never, am I a disciple? The question is always, who is discipling me? Am I being led and shaped by the world? Is that what is informing my thinking? Or am I a student of the word? Grounding my life on the word, making decisions by the word. Am I living by faith? And in case we start thinking that all this reading and devotion of God's word is about Christians um, puffing up their minds, I want you to know what the narrator says about Ezra. It says, Ezra is clearly revealed for his skill as a scribe and priest, but note this, it's more than head knowledge. Note this, verse 10, the writer says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. In my experience, when it comes to reading the Bible, uh, there are often two unhelpful paths that Christians can take. On the one hand, it's possible, isn't it, to treat God and his word as nothing more than an intellectual exercise. So this is the Christian who knows the Bible inside out. Right? This is the person you want on your team for the Bible trivia night. Right? Even at your gospel community, you can see they've got their hand on the buzzer, waiting for you to answer the question so they can get in with their answer. But it's also true that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, that knowledge doesn't seem to fuel any affection for God. No passion for God. No desperation for God. It's just, it's just here, right? On the other hand, isn't it also true that it's possible for some to base their understanding of God, their view of God solely on how they feel and what they think and feel is right? That's how they come to the conclusion about who God is and what God is like. It's like, well, I don't need to read that. I don't need to hear from that. It's just, I just feel this about God. So that must be right. It's experiential. Very nervous about anybody who sounds like a teacher. Nervous about grappling hard texts because at the end of the day, it's just what I feel is right. Interestingly, while we tend to separate the mind from the heart, in the ancient world, those worlds sat as one. The heart, biblically, referred to the core of a person's being, their identity, their essence. It is the seat of their affections, their thoughts, and their wills. And that's what's so great about Ezra. Right? His heart was set after the Lord. So yes, he, he was a smart intellectual dude. Right? You can see him, can't you? In, in his library with his, I don't know, his books and his pens and his paper and his charts and his Logos subscription. And his, he's there working out the text, working hard with his mind and his thought. Right? 
But alongside his biblical literacy, there's an inner resolve and affection. He didn't just know God's word. He treasured and adored God's word. So think about this for your own life. If you see yourself as a thoughtful person with a robust and intellectual faith, praise God. We need more people, not less. We need more people studying God's word and growing in their understanding. But please, don't stop there. Don't treat faith as an intellectual exercise. Go to God in dependence upon him. Go to God saying, would your spirit awaken my soul in love for you? Help me not just to know this word, but to love your word, to cherish it. And similarly, if you're someone who's a bit more on the the feelings and the, I just want to experience side of things, well, praise God for that. We definitely need more believers who have that authentic love for God, passionate in their worship. Praise God for that, but don't stop there. Go deep in the word. Be prepared to ascend the theological mountains and grapple with difficult doctrines and hard texts. We are to devote ourselves to God with everything that we have. This leads to the second observation. You ready for this? Rich it is. Anyone else? We ready? Good. All right. Number two, the rebuild calls us to obey and live God's word. Verse 10, there is a small but significant detail. The narrator says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. (laughs) Now, you could just read that in a Bible study and just jump on over that and miss the weight of significance. Ezra, he studied the law of the Lord and to do it. He didn't just study God's word, he did it. What does that mean? It means he didn't just have a knowledge of God's word, he didn't just have an affection for what it revealed. By the grace of God, he sought to live it, he sought to obey it. He sought to put it to work. And I really want to underscore that today because we're living, aren't we, in this unique time in history that gives us more access to information than any other generation. Right? There is just so much knowledge and information in the world and it's all there at your fingertips. Right, even, and this is going to sound old when I say this, back in my day when I went to school and you did an essay, you couldn't get Siri to write it for you. You actually had to read a book. Remember books? Right, I know a bunch of you are cramming for exams and you're doing essay writing. Right, so back in my day, you actually had to go to a place called a library and they had books there, paper books, and if you were late to getting your paper in and everybody else in the class had already like taken out the books, you were stuffed. That's all you had. Now I can access any book, any article, any blog at any time from any place. 
right? We are just, we have knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge. And so as Christians, we can consume information now at a rapid rate, right? It's like a kid at the Slurpee machine who's just there like this the whole time, right? That's what we can do with knowledge and information. We can just consume religious content 24-7. But in this, not only what must we now curate what is helpful from what is unhelpful, but we must also be very careful not to confuse knowledge with obedience. James, brother of Jesus, lands it like this. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I suspect most of us know a lot. We really do. We know what the Bible says about Jesus and the church. We know what the Bible says about heaven and hell. We know what the Bible says about the problem of sin and the hope of resurrection. We know what the Bible says when it comes to our purpose and the call to love our enemies and forgive those who trespass against us. We know the call to be generous with our money and what's required of us when it comes to our relationships. We know the call to be pure, uh, that we're not to gossip, we're not to look at porn, we're not to sleep around. We know the call, don't we, to be compassionate. We know the call and command to pray. You and I, we, we, we know a lot. But the challenge I see in Ezra and I hear in Jesus is not in what you know, but in how you live. The challenge is not in what we know, but how we live. It's a famous um, Aussie speech, Australian speech, by John Kennedy in 1975. Um, He was the coach, John Kennedy was the coach of the Hawthorne Football Club. Do we have any Hawks fans here today? Not one. Not one. Is that amazing? Really? All right, there you go. Or they're not brave enough to admit it at this point. I get it. Right? So he's the the coach of the Hawthorne Football Club at the time. It's grand final day. 110,000 screaming fans are at the MCG. And his team are playing poorly. They're overthinking their role. Uh, The pressure of the day is getting to their heads. And they're second-guessing themselves. And, And Kennedy, he's frustrated by this. He's upset by the way they are fumbling around. And so right in the heart of the MCG... He gathers them together in a huddle and he looks at them, eyes them. And what does he say? Don't think, do. Don't think, do. Right now, clearly thinking is important. You got to think. We know that. But if it's not followed by action, it counts for nothing. Don't think, do. 
Don't just think about praying. Do. Don't just think about reading your Bible and setting up time to read. Do. Don't just think about being generous with your resources. Do. Don't just think about slaying sin. Do. Don't just think about stepping out in your faith and doing something courageous with this one life that you have. Don't think. Do. Could you imagine if we could take hold of that? If we were that church, we all know the church is just all the talk. But what if we were the church that didn't just think, we do. If we stumbled forward together. Imagine if we were the church that didn't just talk about being compassionate. But actively pursued it. Actively had the the poor and marginalized at our dinner tables. Welcoming them. Caring for them. Could you imagine if we were the church that were serious about holiness? Not just singing about holiness, talking about what holiness is. Living it. Pursuing it. Doing it. Instead of being dragged by the current of our world, we spurred each other on to live a life of purity and of righteousness. We challenged one another in love when it came to our sex life, when it came to our thought life, our pursuit and our behaviors and our practices. Could you imagine if we were a church that prayed, didn't just talk about prayer, didn't just know of the power of prayer, but we were that church that prayed. Each of us stepping out in faith every morning. Think of the access you have to God. Every morning you start your day on your knees. Thank you, Lord, for this life that I have. Thank you. Would you lead me, guide me this day? When you catch up with someone at work and you're going through a difficult situation, not just thinking about what to No, you pray. Imagine if we all collectively, individually, personally prayed. Could you imagine if we were that church that gave? It was generous. I mean, pretty much every Christian today knows that the Bible says, yeah, if you're a Christian, you should be giving at least 10% of your income to, to gospel work. We know that, yet the studies will tell you that about... Most Christians give about 2%. If anything, they know it, they're not doing it. Imagine if we flipped a switch. Imagine if we said, I'm going to step out and live by faith in accordance with the word. Imagine how we could care for the poor in this city. Imagine the gospel ministry we could do. Imagine the churches that could be planted, the needs that would be provided for. If we didn't just think, we do. And could you imagine if we loved each other? Who wants to be part of a church where it's constant gossip and backstabbing and division? And who wants? No. 
What if we just loved one another, cared for one another, took opportunities to build up one another? It's great to know things about God. It's great to know the Bible. But in this age of information, there is a great danger that our knowledge surpasses our obedience. Listen, knowledge precedes obedience, but knowledge shouldn't exceed obedience. Let me encourage you to lean in on that. Practically. When we gather on a Sunday, such a big part of what we do. When we gather in the week, gospel community, big part of what we do. Don't just blast through the points or the questions. Stop. Pray. Say, God, how now am I supposed to live? What am I to change in my life as a result of this? What's one thing I can do this week as a result of your living Word. Christianity is so much more, City on a Hill, than a system of belief. It has to be a way of life. Amen? Third and final point. The rebuild, it invites us to trust the hand of God's grace. Know what the writer says in verse 9. From the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And then on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. Throughout Ezra's life, we're going to hear this same refrain. The good hand of his God was on him. God's hand was on him. And that is perhaps more significant than we realize. Ezra is clearly an impressive dude. Highly skilled skilled in studying the Bible, and he demonstrates great skill and and courage in going from Babylon, taking that risky journey all the way to Jerusalem. He demonstrates skill and impressiveness in his ability to raise support from the king who helps him on that way. Uh, He builds a team. When he gets to Jerusalem, he starts appointing leaders and teachers and people to make sure that the word is taught and the people are obeying it, right? So, So much about his life and ministry is very, very impressive. But what the narrator is wanting us to see, what Ezra, I'm sure, would say, is that the fruit of his ministry and the accomplishment in his career isn't owing to his superior intellect or spiritual resolve. It's owing to the power of God. The hand of God was upon him. Think about that. You could have everything in this world, but if you haven't got God at the center of it, you have nothing. Or to put that more positively, you could struggle with doubts. You could have minimal skills. You could have a low IQ, EQ. You could have bad breath. But if you have God, if you have God's hand of grace upon your life, He can do immeasurably more than you could ever think or imagine. Start of the sermon, I told you about Billy Graham. In his early years, he wasn't the Billy Graham (laughs) that we know. Failed ministry, a sea of doubts, and yet all that changed 
at that tree stump. God's hand was upon him. The very next morning, he preached at a camp at Forest Home. 400 people made a commitment to Christ. 400 people. Uh, One of the women who was there remarked that he's preached with authority that she had never seen before from him. Weeks later, he went on to preach at the historic Los Angeles Crusade. And we call it the historic Los Angeles Crusade because that is when everything explodes. A ministry that was supposed to go for three weeks went for eight weeks. Thousands of people packed out the Canvas Cathedral. So many giving their life to Jesus. Like Ezra, Graham was an impressive man. But what was impressive was not his skill. It was his God. It was his God. And here is something quite remarkable for us. As the band comes up, um, here's what's remarkable. The same God at work then... The same God at work in Ezra. The same God who came to us in Christ and by his hand raised him to new life. That same God is alive and at work and here today. We've called this series Rebuild because we're convinced that God is the one establishing us as his city on a hill. And we celebrate all God is doing. We celebrate seeing people gather together, hearing testimonies, Jesse's testimony. Man, thank you, brother, for sharing that. So encouraging. As you would testify, I'm just hearing God at the center and your your desire to put God at the center. We celebrate that. We celebrate hearing stories of people coming to know Jesus, right? God is on the move. God is building His church. And as we step into our future, we will continue to be a people of the Word, trusting God and the power of the gospel that is in Christ Jesus. And our commitment to the Word, it extends far beyond what we do just here. Right now, we have men and women opening the Bible with our young kids and city kids. Praise God for them. Praise God that they are discipling with their parents, the parents, helping them understand the the good news of the gospel. I thank God for our gospel community leaders. It's not easy in winter to open up your home. It's not easy to get along to a gospel community. But here we are gathering as God's people, men and women opening up the word. By show of hands, who, who, who serves as a gospel community leader here? Yeah, can we put our hands together and thank the Lord for these guys? You know, right now, most of our groups are full and overflowing, and uh, we're going to be running a, a gospel community launch pad in the coming weeks for people trying to get into a group uh, with the hope of launching new groups to serve this church and our city going forward. And maybe you can help. Maybe you could open up your home. Maybe you could step out in faith and say, you know what, maybe I could have a go at leading one of these groups. Maybe you could serve in City Kids. Maybe you could help our online team who are helping us work together to get the gospel out so that people might know the beauty, truth, and relevance of Jesus. 
This is who we are. We're a people of the Word. The Word made flesh. Jesus has called us to Himself. And we're going to entrust ourselves to Him. So before we sing now, um, I want to give you a moment, give us a moment to respond. Um, I encourage you, wherever you are, to resolve in your heart to be a man or woman of the Word. To be a man or woman who accepts this as God's Word and to live by faith. Not just to think about it, but to live by faith. I'll give you a few moments to just share your heart with the Lord. This is about you and Him. Uh, You might like to kneel where you are, as Graham kneeled before that tree, that we would have this moment personally and collectively. Um, And then Jess is going to lead us in song. So I'll give you a few moments to do that right now. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.